from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Los Angeles, California. On this week's edition, 20 C-suite sustainability heroes you need to know. Dalkia recharges its energy management mission. A preview of the year ahead. And what's your professional ambition for 2020? Get ready for the super year this week on 350. It's January 10th, 2020. Who could believe it? It's 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350, the first of the new decade. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Heather, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Joel. So a super year? What's that about? Well, it's not about the big football game on February 2nd. This is actually something that People have started talking about uh, last year out of the UN and of all places, but also groups like WWF and the OECD. I want to read something that sort of explains it from the OECD, the big organization of, of developed uh, economies. It said 2020 provides a momentous opportunity. It's a super year for the environmental and sustainable development agendas. World leaders will take a series of global decisions that will set the direction of our planet's future during the year, an agreement on a new global biodiversity framework, action on climate change, a treaty for the oceans, and a renewed commitment to the environment under the UN Sustainable Development Goals, all will be negotiated. So that's what Super Year means. A lot of things in 2020 are coming to a head. And if you think about it, we're five years into the Sustainable Development Goals, which go from 2015 to 2030. It's kind of high time that we stop planning and start doing and moving the needle on some of these things. And of course, there's going to be a big COP uh, in Glasgow in November when a lot of when countries are going to be asked to step up their ambition and report out on how they're doing that. There's going to be a big biodiversity COP in China in October. Lots and lots of things that are frankly, kind of make or break. And kind of scary, that fact that we have all of these decisions that need to be made, and we haven't been able to make a single decision in any of these past years. So I, wow, that's intimidating. And and I, you had, you had this great list of all the things we were watching in your newsletter this week. So I, I guess I'm scared, but I'm also super invigorated. There's a lot to write about, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think I said in the newsletter that if you're like most people, that uh, being in this in the environment and sustainability world is a combination of exhilarating and terrifying, and that's always been the case, or certainly has been for the past few years. But I think in 2020, things are going to be uh, exhilarating er and terrifying er, <laughs> more of same, but the emphasis is on more. So I have to ask why you're in a warm place this week uh, and why I'm in such a cold place. Yeah, you got a little snow there, I think, or certainly uh, close to that. Uh, well, January, uh, those of you who have been keeping score at home may remember it's um, Green uh, GBEN month, the Green Biz Executive Network, GBEN as we call it. 
has three meetings each in January, May, and September. And this week was the first of those three January meetings, a meeting, uh, and, and members host the meetings, and one of our members is NBC Universal. So we were meeting at their headquarters in, uh, in Universal City, Los Angeles area, and uh, right next to the theme park, uh, we got a ride on their not-yet-released, still prototype, but soon to become the norm, all electric tram that they take people Ooh. around the theme park in. Um, we got to mm -hmm. sort of kick the tires, as it were, mm -hmm. and to uh, hear what's going on here uh, and meet the chairman, uh, amazing guy who's uh, uh, been, I think, uh, come out of the comes out of the BBC. There aren't a lot of uh, funny Brits uh, in my experience, at least. Certainly. Uh, uh, he's certainly one of them. His name is Paul uh, Telegdi, I think is the way you pronounce his last name. He's the co-chairman of NBC Entertainment and uh, came and spoke with us and uh, sort of regaled us with some of his views on what's going on and, you know, and how all of these things not just fit into the company and its culture and its operations and the productions, all the TV shows and movies that it makes here and around the world but also just being in Los Angeles or in New York and dealing with Hurricane Sandy and the wildfires here in, in Southern California and how the climate is increasingly impacting the employees. They, they, they lost uh, 30 employee homes uh, during the fires here, and hundreds of people were affected by Sandy. And so this, is, this, this literally hits home, literally. How, how usual is it for a... CEO or chairman to show up at one of our GBEN meetings. That seems kind of like a nice, uh, a nice drop in. Well, we do get uh, at each uh, company that we uh, that hosts at each GBEN meeting, uh, the sustainability person who is in, in effect the host, um, we're is asked to bring in a C-suite executive from uh -huh. the company who's not in sustainability. So we'll hear from talent acquisition or head of supply chain or uh, the CFO from, you know, and these are all very big companies, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar global companies typically. In this case, um, we got sort of the ultimate C-suiter and uh, it, it was it was quite a, a really fun and, and, and I have to say enlightening and, and inspiring moment to hear somebody, you know, because, you know, the rub on Hollywood is it's so superficial and, you know, if you saw the uh, Golden Globes, you know, Rick, uh, Ricky Gervais, who was emceeing uh, that, was really ragging on uh, on Hollywood for a lot of its hypocrisy and particularly environmental. And a lot of the the focus was on the horrible fires in Australia right now. Um, but he was uh, uh, Paul, who was talking about that uh, uh, quite openly about you know the absurdities of of what happens. Uh, even by some of the people who who profess to care and do and, and generally do care, but the, you know it, there is a lot of hypocrisy here. And so the challenge, if you're running a studio or a theme park or anything else, but particularly a studio where you're dealing with all this talent, is how do you bring them along? How do you you know move everyone over to Palm Springs, which is only you know 100 miles away or so, and not every everyone expecting to be on their own private jet, which is what they expect because they're stars. Um, or how do you, you know, how does that work? And how do you do that without uh, really shooting yourself in the foot? Or maybe you have to shoot a toe or two to get everyone's attention. Yeah, you get some really high level person to be real and do it. And then everyone else will want to do it. It's a habit, I suppose. But 
that's great. I'm I'm happy to hear that. Well, you know what? That leads into one of the stories I want to talk about this week. So let's move over to the Week in Review. And that story, we'll get right into it, is uh, by uh, our wonderful contributor, former managing editor Elsa Wenzel, called 20 C-Suite Sustainability Champions for 2020. I mean, this was a, a great day. I don't even know how this came about. Do you? You must know. Well, it's a labor of love. I know that for sure. Uh, I love lists. <laughs> I love I love finding individuals within organizations that aren't getting as much attention perhaps as they should be and and bringing attention to them, shining a spotlight on them. So I know that we, we were thinking of a good list for the beginning of the year and you had encouraged us to think about 2020 and what was going on in the future and where, where could we be. And for me, one of the most important trends moving forward is to integrate and to holistically think about these environmental, social, and governance issues at the C-suite level. It's not just the CSO, though. It's the CXO, the C- chief financial officers, the, the chief executive officers, obviously, the chief human resources officers, the chief everything. <laughs> I am particularly fascinated by the chief financial officers on this list. Uh, one in particular is is the president and uh and chief financial officer of Salesforce, it's Mark Hawkins. And one of the things that he did was integrate sustainability factors just into the the, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission filings. Just It's just in there. It's part of the quarterly business review and it's just such a lot for me, such a logical thing to do. So I was fascinated by the, the chief financial officers on this list. I'm curious who struck your attention, Joel. Well, I definitely am a fan of Mark Hawkins uh, at Salesforce. Um, I know uh, the, you've been talking a lot to uh, to the shipping company Maersk, um, mm-hmm. and we and their CEO Soren Scow, I think is how you say it. He's the CEO and interim COO, um, and and ocean going shipping being uh, the challenge that it is to to bring a lot along. It's it's really exciting to see uh, someone from that industry really taking lead. But what's interesting is that there's a, a, across a number of these um, sort of hard to mitigate industries. So we've got Willie Walsh, the CEO of the IAG, the International Airlines Group, which is the owner of British Airways, among others, uh, Aer Lingus and Iberia, I think are the others. Um, and they've uh, they've done a lot of interesting things. And um, and of course, automotive and, and energy um, hard to abate sectors, as they're called in UN speak. So I think I guess it's just really inspiring to see that this is, I think, moving up, being pushed upstairs, and that there are there have always been some CEOs. You know, the good old Ray Anderson from Interface, or Yvon Chouinard from Patagonia, but it's been a fairly Paul Pullman when he was at Unilever. Uh, two of the three of those aren't there anymore, and 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 Yvonne the third is not even running Patagonia anymore. But his CEO Rose Macario is on the list, so it's just it's it's really encouraging to see that um, moving upstairs that this is really starting to get the C-suite's attention. And I, I believe as we continue to build this list year over year, that we're going to find. Uh, probably easier and easier to source the 20 or so that we pick every year and not have to, I think this, you know, was a little bit harder because we're the first time and there just aren't that many. And, 
and finding them uh, will get easier. Finding them will get easier. We'll have to make sure we don't repeat. That might be a challenge too, as people become even more aggressive about their about how they advocate for this. So I love this list. By the way, I'm going to put in a plug for the the other list I'm working on for International Women's Day, the the second badass women in good corporate sustainability list. And anyone out there listening, send us an email at 350@greenbiz.com, and I would love to hear your ideas for that list. Who's a badass woman that uh, is probably isn't getting the attention she deserves, or maybe if she is, just even a little more wouldn't hurt. But that's a great list that did so well last year. That probably one of our top stories of 2019. I can't wait. That's uh, March, early March or mid-March? March 8th, yeah. March 8th is International Women's Day. We're timing it around that. I've already had some really great ideas and looking for more. Well, since we're talking about uh, 20 to watch and what's going on, there's this another piece is written by a senior writer and analyst for transportation, Katie Fehrenbacher, why 2020 will be a key year and decade for electric vehicles. And and I have to say, you know, there's the the cynical part of me says, you know what, haven't we been saying this for a long, long time that, you know, electric vehicles are just around the corner, electric vehicles are going to be coming on strong. What's interesting here is that Katie makes a really good case of why this time it is truly different. Just the number uh, of EV models that are going to be on sale uh, by the end of this year for European consumers, 175. 100 in the U.S., which is kind of, US, that's yeah. kind of big. Yeah, that's kind of big too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, that's true. maybe multiple models of the same car. There may be double counting a little bit, but still the point is um, there's uh, there's so much coming online. And, uh, and there are some car companies that are, you know, have announced that they're going to phase out internal combustion engines probably by the end of this decade that we're now in. Um, but many more that are just going to, I think, increasingly see that this is the future, particularly since it's being driven, pardon the expression, by China. Uh, this is what Chinese markets want. A Tesla, this uh, last couple of weeks, I guess, um, it might have been last week, uh, famously, uh, uh, Elon Musk went to China to uh, open, uh, deliver the first models made in China for the Chinese market. And um, that's, uh, I think, an entry point that we're just going to be seeing those coming out. More and more car companies are going to figure out how do we crack that market. Well, I love the fact that Ford has a Mustang that model now that's electric because that's a muscle car and that's a, that's a really well-known vehicle. So I think that that helps draw attention from the, the skeptics and the, the non-believers, if you will. But for me, one of the most intriguing data points in the in the article was the fact that Tesla actually made its shipment number last year 367,500 vehicles they they made the target which isn't always the case for them and that was i think uh, uh, i think that's worth pointing to i don't know if that's because the incentives were expiring and you know people buy a lot at the end of the year or whatever but it's still a a, a good number to see well, no, I think that it's not about the demand. The demand has been there. It's really about Tesla's ability to actually ship cars. Fair uh, enough. And, you know, yep. get them out of the the, the back end, the front end or the back end or wherever the cars come out of the factory, um, completed cars. Uh, they'd had some production troubles, and now they're actually able to meet those production goals such that they can – because there's a backlog of orders for the – 
for the, I think it's the three, the, the more popularly priced Tesla, it's all relative, but um, there's a several year backlog. So it's not about the demand. Uh, it's really about, you know, this is the first new car company, you know, delivering at this level, this scale in a long, long time. So yeah, kudos. And, and by the way, they're starting to be profitable. Just one other point to build on that. I think I'll go into the skeptic camp for a moment. And that, and I was looking here at the story and I was thinking about all the different German car companies that have models that they're, that they're making. And it did get me thinking about what needs to happen at the plant level to support that demand. And the fact is that some of these models require a lot less parts. And that means fewer workers and people might have to close plants. And so we might see a backlash from the industry that the, the manufacturing industry that is creating these these cars as well. So that that's I think that's going to be kind of painful. So that will be a point to watch in the in the year ahead, whether these companies can actually produce and if they don't have labor problems associated with them. Well, here's another point to watch, and it comes in a third story. This one from Sarah Murphy, our Greenbridge contributor, about a proposed um, Securities and Exchange Commission rule that could change uh, the world of um, investor activism. And as you might imagine from the behavior of the federal government over the past few years, it changed it in a way that is more helpful to business than to activists or concerned citizens. And this goes to uh, the ability for investors to file shareholder resolutions to challenge uh, companies to do things like provide more disclosure and transparency on or, or information about climate risk or uh, the supply chain issues or anything else that falls in the sustainability rubric, not just environmental, but social as well. In the past, there was no real uh, minimum number of shares that somebody could hold in order to file a resolution. And this has been one of the main tools of the uh, what used to be the socially responsible investment world. I guess it's, it still is, but increasingly it's being described as the ESG, environmental, social, and governance world, as more and more uh, big investors, the Black Rocks and Vanguards and Fidelities, uh, have been engaging in, at, at the ESG level. Ironically, the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the Fidelities have, have not been supportive of keeping the rules as they are, and they've been uh, uh, throwing their weight behind some of these proposals to uh, do things like increase the number of shares that you have to have in order to have standing to to file a proxy re uh, resolution or any number of other things that are just going to make it tougher to, to do this, to raise the level of support shareholders need to resubmit a proposal that once it, it it had been introduced and failed, and they mostly fail, or eliminate investors' longstanding practice of pooling their shares in order to meet the filing thresholds. Um, the, the thing about these resolutions and why they're important is not because they typically pass, because they typically don't. But once they start to get a little momentum, uh, like providing this disclosure on climate risks, they open up a dialogue between the activist shareholders or the activist groups behind those shareholders and the companies. And very frequently, it results in the company saying, okay, we will do this if you withdraw the resolution. So the resolution doesn't necessarily force people in and of itself, but the conversation around that does. And so the inability or the difficulty or increased hurdles that companies will face it's a really 
I think, frustrating and, and potentially dangerous thing in addressing companies that they would need in the ways they need to be addressed. And this goes to the whole area of corporate activism and employee activism and so forth with with companies advocating from within and without, right? Advocating within with their own employees, but also speaking their mind out in the community and talking about different policies they want to see. So and and there's a lot of double speak if you will because in this in the story Sarah does talk about how she, you know, off the record, she heard from some oil and gas companies that, you know, they thought that these were great, that, that these resolutions and the ability to, to have this dialogue was important. But yet they're the they're want they're the ones that, that were sort of pushing for these the SEC to change these rules. So it's, um, you know, it does go to the sustainability communities responsibility for talking about policy with with their higher ups and with the C-suite going back to the C-suite discussion you'll get outside your box and talk to others in your com- company about how what they're doing may be harmful intentionally otherwise and you mentioned employee activism and that gives us a chance to plug uh, our release next week on Monday January 13th of the 23rd 20- uh, 20, our 13th annual State of Green Business Report, uh, and uh, you'll we'll talk a little bit about employee activism. It's uh, one of the trends that I'll give that away right now that we're going to be featuring. Uh, there's a webcast to, to launch it, as we always do, and uh, go to greenbiz.com to find out more about that. Joining the webcast will enable you to be one of the first to hear about the report and to download it. Dalkia, a division of energy company EDF, in October rebranded its existing building energy services operations in the United States. The parent generated $4.6 billion in revenue last year for its efficiency and building management services. And here to talk about the company's re-energized U.S. strategy is the CEO of Dalkia Energy Solutions, John Gerster. John, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask you this. So I, I want to just start with the branding question. So why the rebranding? Are you adding new services or capabilities, or what, was there some um, overhaul of strategy that, that prompted this this sort of re, rebranding and relaunch launch of the Dalkia name in the U.S.? Yeah. So the, uh, the the opportunity in the U.S. is not dissimilar from what it is in other countries. Although in the U.S. The, the new thing within Dalkia is that we have more capacity. EDF in the U.S. has a presence in the form of a renewables business, EDF Renewables, which is a, a core part of the opportunity in the U.S., as well as EDF Energy Services, which is commodity trading and distribution. So Dalkia, as the buildings division, we launched knowing that for commercial and industrial and institutional customers, they need a comprehensive offering, which is actually just as much as what Dalkia is doing. It includes our sister companies. So the relaunch was really just an attempt to make sure we position that we're comprehensive. Whenever we look at any business, we look at the, the, the where they consume energy, whether they have opportunities to consume it uh, in a more carbon-friendly way, and of course, most importantly, as it relates to Dalkia, whether we can optimize those buildings consume less energy overall. So that, that was the reason that we introduced Dahlia because it's 
really part of the EDF family and it's the building story, but it brings the other services that are part of EDF as well. So I know that the totality of the operations is 4.6 billion in revenue. Is there a, I don't know if that's specific to the United States or if that's worldwide, but I'm just, how, how big is this U.S. division when you consider all of the things that, that's ha- that are happening around the world with Nokia? Right. For the, for the U.S., we're still small. We're between two and 300 people. Uh, and the, the platform that today is Dalkia includes the building energy efficiency services, as well as the on-site CHP generation of energy. So CHP being the production of heat and electricity on a building site. The, so we have a, still today only a, a few hundred employees where our parent company worldwide has 16,000. So we're a, the smaller part of their operation. And Dalkia worldwide is in a bunch of other countries, including the UK, Ireland, Poland, Poland Russia. And, and so the strategy in the US is that we'll be growing organically with the two platforms, uh, the building energy efficiency and the CHP, but also through other acquisitions. And the idea is basically to make sure we can to have a conversation with any large organization that has uh, buildings in whatever geography and make sure we can assess the buildings, optimize what they might be from a consuming of energy standpoint, but also where they may have opportunity for things like green energy, using green energy in those buildings, or how they buy and procure their their, their energy. So that's the strategy under Donk in the U.S. So you mentioned industrial, commercial, organizations, that's your, your primary customer focus. So are there any particular mm-hmm. industries that you're focused on serving? Yeah, so the broad, the broad categories, of course, you can actually call them non-residential, but they're commercial, industrial, and institutional. Um, but the I'd say the, the sub-industries that we tend to have a very strong installed base and experience in include hospitality, which is, sort of includes hotels and senior living facilities, um, grocery stores and retail stores, multi-unit housing or multifamily housing, industrial facilities, distribution facilities. And so typically our customers have a number of buildings which could be in multiple geographies, hence the reason that we're, our team is trying to cover the entire U.S. I think last year we did projects in 45 states. I think we have employees in 21 or 22 different states. So the objective is to be closer to where the buildings are and be able to, to look uh, holistically at the regions of the U.S. where the opportunities may be best for our customers. And to the extent they're just in one region, of course, being able to service those needs as well. So we are taking a national approach. It is, as I said, it's commercial, industrial, and institutional with the, some of the examples I gave you of the verticals where we focus. And we're growing into new verticals as well because you know buildings are similar across uh, different geographies. So grocery stores are pretty similar in terms of energy footprint. We can do those pretty much anywhere in the country. But other buildings have more unique uh, requirements depending on where they are and uh, the operations. So we're trying to go into new verticals as well. You recently disclosed a a really substantial engagement with Great Wolf Lodge, which runs a network of indoor water parks. Can you provide some highlights? Yeah, I mean, a water park is an interesting operation because it's a bit like an industrial facility in that uh, they're producing, in the case of a water park, they're producing heated water for a water park, yet they're also running a hotel, which has its 
own requirements for, for heating, cooling, and lighting as a principal consumption of energy. So for Great Wolf Lodge, I think the thing we're most proud about is that we, I think we touched uh, 10 of their facilities and each facility across the different locations had different requirements. The most substantive that we talked about more recently included uh, both the use of CHP for producing heat as well as electricity on site, as well as a number of measures inside the building to reduce the demand. So things like building controls, lighting, and even water uh, consumption reduction measures. So it was very comprehensive. Again, the story that we're trying to bring is that in a complex building, there's lots of opportunities to save energy, reduce resource consumption. And you know we're proud of the fact that we can look at those as a group and address them. And Great Wolf Lodge was also for us a, a customer who is very motivated to do this across mm-hmm. multiple locations. So we're, you know, we're looking at it as an example where it's complex and there's a lot of interdependencies within one building, but we also help them with a number of different locations across the country. So we think that's unique that we can do what we do uh, anywhere where their locations are. And uh, we're not finished. So there's more to do, um, but we did announce the fact that we had reduced their consumption by 10% already. And so that was something we're all able to measure that has a broader uh, statement of applicability to both us as well as their customers who care about their behavior. Now, when you handle a group like that, uh, how much of what you do is common from location to location? Because I, I mean, I've covered this long enough to know that things yeah. like the temp, you know, the regional factors of, of energy, of course, and the temperature and like, what it's like in New Jersey today versus what where you are in Boston, you know, like the, there's just all sorts of factors that are unique to a location. So, how how much can can you apply from location to location? Is it a large amount, or or you know, what's the percentage you have to kind of keep? Yeah, the applications are similar. You know, the you know if you look at the largest loads in any building, it's generally the conditioning, the heating and air conditioning, and, and the, the the lighting are typical obvious loads, and then there's other sub loads in, in each building type, but it is the case, like you said, I mean, in New Jersey summer, you're going to have a lot more humidity to deal with than you are in Maine. And so there is sort of a temperature uh, issue you've got to figure out. But the other ones are, there's a rate, like, you know, in New Jersey, you guys have a rate structure that may include uh, the time that energy is being consumed, uh, as well as your peak demand. So that's something we have to model for that particular building, uh, where in other geographies, you wouldn't. And so we'll have to know if the building needs to be uh, you know, intelligent to control consumption at certain times, not just on total amount. Uh, so it is pretty regional, not just by temperature and by utility zone, but also the state of the building. Some some hotels, for instance, we go into are are really old. And so the systems themselves, um, you know, it's going to be a more substantive process to upgrade them. Other hotels are brand new and they're in geographies where they're they're already intelligently wired for digital controls. And so our, our opportunities may be less. Uh, and so it may be the case that we think we have a great opportunity when we get there, we realize they've already done a fair amount of what they need to do. But um, that's the skill set we have to have to do that efficiently, regardless of where the buildings are. But it is the case that, you know, each building is, is similar from the outside. And then once you get inside, you're, you're trying to assess those principal systems and know that it could be different depending on the geography. 
I'm going to throw you a wild card question. <laughs> Sorry, but I got to do it because uh, you, you do talk a lot about upgrading the systems in a building, right? Maybe you're going to retrofit something. Maybe you're going to upgrade it outright. I don't know. Um, but how much does your organization think about other principles of sustainability, like circularity, for example, like upgrading a system versus overhauling the whole, the whole new thing? Is that something that you're, you're, professionals are trained to focus on at this time as, as that sort of, you know, sensibility pervades the business world. Do you talk a lot about that? Well, we do because most of our customers start with a, a building that in general, the systems are usually older. I, mm -hmm. I gave you examples that there are cases where brand new buildings have been built with uh, the newest technology, yet they're not operating the most efficiently. So, it is the case that we're always trying to make the existing systems last longer, and we're principally adding things to them to make them operate more efficiently. So you know, any business that we deal with principally has to teach us how they prioritize an investment return uh, with, with what could be purely a financial view versus something that's broader. So our team will not necessarily come in and say, uh, we want to recommend replacing all your systems unless all those systems are at the end of life, which is rarely the case. So we talk about it with our customers, we take their coaching, and we have to respond to what their priorities are. Mm -hmm. And we do think about it as best we can that there are existing buildings today that are really old, that are easy to add little things that save a lot of energy. But I'll tell you what's, what's more uh, confusing to us sometimes is when we walk into a brand new building and because of the fact that the decisions that were made along the way were optimized around reducing the cost of the systems in the building, brand new systems are not the right systems for that building, nor are they configured correctly. And they're brand new buildings. So th those are always things that we try to work through and get coaching from the customer we're working with that tells us, here's how we prioritize these things. And some customers say, we're going to keep these things running as long as possible. And that's our view. And we just need you to optimize that they're more energy efficient, um, and they're going to last for literally some cases 30 or 40 years. Right. Okay. Got to ask you, always, always got to ask at the beginning or the end of a, a year, what's your top priority for 2020? Yeah. So you said at the beginning, you know, the rebranding is just a, some, it's a high level thing, but the, the evidence points of rebranding are like what we did when we talked about Great Wolf Lodge. We want to have success with multiple measures inside of our customers' environments with our EDS sister companies. So we are planning in 2020 to have more of those live where each of the companies has brought something to a customer. And the basics are that we look at the demand side and we look at the supply side and we look at where there's opportunity for on-site generation. And so we now are working with our sister companies where the customer's benefit is that they have competencies across all three of those. And so in 2020, I'm hoping I'm talking to you again, and I'm telling you about some more examples of things that we're now uh, able to do because we're, we're, uh, we're launched and we're part of the sister companies of EDF in the U.S. As promised, we'll end this week's episode with your voices. We asked readers and listeners in the Green Biz community to comment on 
this question, what's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? We had 10, count them, 10 people submit audiograms, if you will. And here are those thoughts. Hi, I'm Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer for Google. My biggest ambition for 2020 is to enable everyone, businesses, policymakers, and consumers to create and live in a more sustainable world. Sustainability has been one of Google's core values since our founding, and we are focused on building sustainability into everything that we do, from designing efficient data centers, to creating sustainable workplaces, to manufacturing better devices, and creating more efficient supply chains. But our goal is much bigger now, and I am very much looking forward to working with teams at Google and our partners to build products and technologies that support everyone in creating a more sustainable future. Hi, Scott Breen here, VP of Sustainability with the Can Manufacturers Institute. CMI is the National Trade Association of the Metal Can Manufacturing Industry and its suppliers in the United States. Think food cans, beverage cans, and aerosol cans. My professional ambition for 2020 is for more people to think beyond if something is collected for recycling and is technically recyclable. In other words, going beyond access, collection, and recyclability. Companies should be using and consumers should be purchasing materials and items that our current recycling system can process at scale into new materials that can also be recycled. My goal is to make it so the question is asked more, even if this thing is technically recyclable and even if the recycling truck takes it away, what actually happens to it? Hello, Green Biz World. Uh, happy 2020. Uh, I'm John Elkington. I'm founder and chief pollinator at Volance, based in London, but I'm also an editor-at-large of Green Biz. Um, on the 10th of January, which I think is when this podcast appears, we're also ha- holding our Tomorrow's Capitalism Forum in London. And that's about 300 people coming. And it's part of our Tomorrow's Capitalism inquiry. And the subtitle, just to give you a sense of where we are in all of this, is step up or get out of the way. As to my professional ambition for 2020, which is what Joel has asked us all for, I trailed that in April, on April the 3rd in Green Beers, where I did a piece called On the Trail of the Green Swan. Uh, many of you will know that Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, talked about black swans, which are events that uh, spiral out of control, uh, take us places we really don't want to go. Uh, they're sort of often negatively uh, exponential. What I'm interested in is green swans, things that take us in uh, exponentially positive uh, directions. We have a new book coming out uh, in April, so a year on from that uh, Green Biz uh, piece. It will be published by Fast Company Press, and it is called Green Swans, and the subtitle is um, The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism. I hope I'll be talking about that um, in uh, Green Biz uh, very imminently. But in the meantime, a very happy decade to all uh, readers and listeners uh, to Green Biz. Thank you. Hi, I'm Peter Kelly Detweiler, Principal of Northbridge Energy Partners and a contributor for Forbes.com. My biggest professional ambition for 2020 is to get a draft of my book entitled The Energy Switch on the astoundingly complex and important energy transformation submitted ahead of the due date. 
350 pages by mid-August sounds easy, right? Hi, my name is Kamila Knight, and I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Lead at Unilever in North America. My biggest ambition for 2020 is to help bridge the gap of understanding between how diversity and inclusion and the sustainable development goals are linked together and how in order for us to achieve all 17 of the sustainable development goals, diversity and inclusion needs to be at the forefront. I think that we should be leveraging technology now more than ever as we're in the time and age where technology has advanced and can help us achieve both diversity and inclusion and the sustainable development goals. Hi, I'm Will Sarney, founder and CEO of Water Foundry. My greatest ambition for 2020 is to work to establish a simple narrative to explain the complexity and challenges of water essentially our single-use plastic narrative that mobilizes the public sector and civil society along with industries to finally solve the challenges of water scarcity and water quality. Hi, my name is Emilio Tenuta, Chief Sustainability Officer for Ecolab. And my biggest ambition for 2020 is to position Ecolab for the next chapter of our sustainability journey. We're excited. In fact, in June of 2020, we plan to launch our next set of goals. This next generation of goals will be bolder and more transformational, bolstering the connection between Ecolab's core purpose and really creating solutions for society's challenges while also making progress on the UN SDGs. In particular, SDG 6 on on clean water and sanitation and 13 on climate action. Many of us know that smart water management saves energy, but it also helps build climate resilience and helps avoid carbon emissions, something we know a lot about at Ecolab through our work with our customers around the world, saving 188 billion gallons of water in 2018 alone, but along the way, helping them avoid 1.1 million metric tons in carbon emissions. As we take the next step today in our operations, we will continue to work with our more than 1.3 million customer locations to help them lower their resource use while improving efficiency and profitability. Working together, we can build a sustainable economy that works for everyone and for the planet. Hi there, my name is Willem Vriesendorp and I'm the founder of Sustainable Public Affairs here in Brussels, the heart of the European Union. Sustainable Public Affairs is the first lobby firm to take a proactive stance on the environment. We have decided to only serve clients that want more ambitious environmental regulation. Now, how does that make sense for a lobby shop, you might ask? Well, it's easy. There are many sustainable frontrunners out there, often featured on this podcast. For their leadership to become a competitive advantage, they need the regulator to make their standards the norm for all market players. That is what we call policy-driven growth for sustainable business cases. You see, 
Lobby can play an important role for the environment and should be much more central when we speak about sustainability. Lobbyists operate at the heart of our democracies and shape the societies we live in. But more often than not, they advocate for the interests of the status quo. And status quos are exactly not what we need in 2020. So my biggest professional ambition is to lead the sustainability revolution in public affairs. Status quo, here we come. My name is Ellen Weinreb and I'm the CEO of a boutique recruiting firm focused on sustainability called Weinreb Group. And I'm also the author of a column in Green Biz called Talent Show that I've been writing for a decade. And that focuses on the people side of sustainability. So this is a very appropriate topic for talent show and for me personally, and for all of the candidates that I interview, I often ask them about their own ambition as they're embarking on transitions. Um, so I'm looking forward to what other people have to say. And for me, as a small business owner, and as a sustainability recruiter, my ambition is around serving my clients and meeting their needs. And what I'm seeing out there in the marketplace is that the investors are playing a stronger role driving sustainability. So it's my ambition to support my clients in supporting the investors. So that means either on the investor side, placing sustainability leaders, or on the corporate side, supporting ESG leadership, or even with the investors' portfolio companies so that they can support the companies that they're investing in. So it's all around investing and, um, and ESG, and that is my ambition for 2020. Hi, I'm Katherine Winkler, an editor-at-large for GreenBiz and veteran chief sustainability officer. My greatest professional ambition for 2020 is to help sustainability colleagues inspire their companies to advocate for state and local climate policy. Easing a path to taking a stand means helping them figure out how to find relevant legislation where their company's voice could really make a difference, to scan the political landscape, to understand a policy's implications for the business, to learn and even influence what peer companies are doing, and to appreciate the interplay with other policy issues of import to their company. Legislators who want to take a stand for our future really need to know the business has their backs, and we sustainability professionals can help pave the way. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And we always love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>